Hey, hi, hello. Welcome back to another episode of Trail Society brought to you by my friends, our friends. They're my friends. They're all of our friends over at Strava, the number one application for runners and cyclists. My name is Corinne Malcolm. My name is Keely Henninger. And I'm Hillary Allen. And we are all over the place. Uh, Keely's at home. Hillary's in a van somewhere. We're not sure where she is. I'm in Utah at the moment, trying to find my way back to snowy Colorado before I head up to Portland eventually. Keely, I'm coming. (laughs) And I am recording from my good friend, the Paxons. Uh, I think Sarah listens. Sarah's a badass PT up in uh, Bellingham, Washington. I'm recording from their backyard office um, today, different, different than earlier in the week. Um, so I'm kind of excited to be sitting in this like tree house of an office in a Bellingham backyard. It's super cool. I am building one of these. This is really exciting. That looks awesome. (laughs) Um, okay. So we've been having a lot of fun getting to share all these segment stories brought to you by Strava over the past couple of weeks. And we have two more stories to share before we wrap this all up. Um, the, the second to last one being today, we're really excited about it. Um, I hope that you've been excited to hear about all the Strava segments and you can too chase your Strava segments by getting a Strava subscription for only $5 a month and joining us all over there on the Strava platform. But before we get into our Strava segment story for today, we've got a lot of news. It's going to be a big intro. Um, we've got some race news and then we've got some Olympic drama news that we're excited to dive into. Um, you should have heard all of our off off air banter before Keely hit record. Um, but the big one is black can black Canyon. I'll say it right. Jamil black Canyon, um, hundred K happened, um, a little over a week ago with some golden tickets. Um, I was in a cabin in New Mexico, so I did not get to watch the race live. What happened out there? Tell me, tell me the results. (laughs) Well, I mean, first of all, I was just, I was so, okay. I was actually in Arizona. I wasn't, I wasn't, um, at the race itself, but I was like vigorously scrolling and refreshing everything. Um, first of all, I just have to say that I was so impressed just with the overall ages in the top three uh, for both the men and the women, um, for black Canyons. Um, has anyone heard of true heart Brown? True heart was seventh in 2020 for black Canyon. And I remember seeing his name in that sense. Um, mm-hmm. but he's an older dude. He's 41 and second place. Scott Treyer is 40. It's really, mm-hmm. really cool. I know that. Um, I know that true heart Brown is a dad and it was in the Flagstaff area. I don't know much more about Scott Treyer. Scott Treyer has been in the sport for a long time. His like ultra right. sign up list is long, mm-hmm. but yeah, true heart Brown just stomping, like running a pretty fast time on that course too. was really, right. really cool. And just leading from like, he, he didn't even let up. I think, you know, there's a lot of, there were a lot of blowups that happened in that race, like later in the race after about like 37 normally is when that happens. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think I was, I was that was really cool. And I, I don't know much about him, but I did, I was talking with Charlie Ware in uh, Tucson. He was saying that it's super inspiring because it shows like, what happens when you have like, you know, years and years and years of endurance. Cause I think he runs an average, like 50, 50 miles a week. Like, you know, Kern said he's a dad, like he's got a super busy personal and family life. So, you know, but he's, he's still got it. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was super uh, cool. And then Scott Trayer, did anyone see his, his shirt of choice? For the yeah. Bring like back long, the button ups. <laughs> yeah, bringing up, bringing back the button ups, like a long sleeve button up. I don't know if it's a sun shirt or not, but it was like this white long sleeve button up, and I was all about it. It was so 
style icon, Scott Traer. <laughs> yeah. And then third place this year got a golden ticket too, because they yeah. rolled that ticket yeah. into this race. So we have third place, Jeffrey Colt, who's also not a stranger to the sport, but, um, I haven't found that he's raced a ton or at least not races we've heard of. Um, but he's gotten recently a first at I am tough, which is a really, really gnarly race. So that's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, so top three got golden tickets there. Yeah. And it seems like he's been after a golden ticket for a while. He was third at Bandera in 2019 and seventh there in 2018. So it seems like he's been kind of low key on the hunt, at least throwing his name in the ring for one golden ticket race a year. Um, so it's super exciting that not only was he third at this race, um, at 30 years old, but also that he got a golden ticket because there are three on the line. So, so, so yeah. cool in a very deep field. So that was cool. Um, but the yeah, the, the, the women, this is exciting. Um, I had never, um, I mean, I've heard of Dominica mm-hmm. and I think is here. Say. Um, but she's a Polish runner. Uh, she holds the European record for the hundred K and the seven Oh four. And she's also a two thirty six marathoner. So she's, she's a very fast runner. Um, and so she was like guns blazing. She was leading for, I think the majority of the race till about, I think mile 37. I think that's like, I think that's black Canyon. Um, the aid station, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, and then, uh, there was some switching. And so Claire actually ended up, Claire Gallagher ended up taking first and Dominica ended up taking second. Um, and third was Anne Marie Madden. We, we all know her and love her. Um, fan favorite Anne Marie Madden. (laughs) Yeah. So she's throwing it down. That was so cool to see, to see her there. Um, and well, we'll say fourth Taylor Nolan, um, because Claire actually, she declined her golden ticket. Um, so any the, ideas as to why? Yeah, I don't, I was going to ask you guys that I'm My guessing guess UTMB, that, but I don't know. I mean, I think that she's, I mean, she's won Western States too. Like it's not, not to say that Western States is not a bad race, but I've gotten a ton of crap. I think crap's an appropriate word here. Um, <laughs> For like, I was top 10 two years in a row. And then I was like, you know what? I'm good. I'm good for now. Like, I want to come back to this race when I'm in my fifties and like run it with my kid, like have my kids crew and that kind of thing. Like it's a hard race. It, when you do something like Western States at the beginning of your season, like you might not race again for the rest of the year. You might not race well again for the rest of the year, potentially like it takes a lot out of you. And so there are other, like I I've been on the record. I'm on the record again here of saying there are other fish to fry besides Western States, I love Western States. I will be there talking about all of you at Western States, but it's like, if you do that, it's your season and there are other races to go to and other events to be at. And maybe she's got a conflicting event that's even earlier in the season. Totally. But yeah. I think and it's okay I to do, decline. And I, do, I, I agree with all that. I do know that she is racing San Juan Solstice. Um, and that's, cool. that's, that's the same weekend as, as Western. So, <laughs> um, yeah. that might be why <laughs> Yeah, people love to give you, give you crap for turning down a ticket. I get that for sure. I turned down my first ticket and I think it's like, if you don't want to run Western States, you better not run it because you're going to hate all hundred miles of it. Right. <laughs> no, yeah. just cause it's Western doesn't mean you have to take your ticket. So I totally get it, but it was just interesting because I feel like er- racing black Canyon, it's pretty early season as well. A hundred K, um, seems like a a good build for Western, but again, yeah, it's, it's a great build for Western, but if you want to run other stuff, maybe this is your take. This is your chance to rip the bandaid off or something else, get the legs rolling. Maybe it fits in your calendar really well. So I was, I don't know. I'm pr- proud of Claire for like being like, I've got other stuff on my calendar, other things I want to do. Um, mm-hmm. I think something to add to, as we talked about the men, um, Dominica and 
and Ray Madden are 39 years old and 41 years old. Um, so really, really cool to see our, like these athletes who are, you know, at least my senior by a decade, like for almost a decade, I'm almost 32. Um, I'm not that young either, but it's really, it's exciting to see these women like continue to throw down. I'm pretty sure Dominique is a mom. I could be wrong on that, but I feel like I met her at worlds in 2016 in Portugal, um, and ran a lot of the race with her. She's got this crazy calf tattoo that I stared at for a long time. Um, her and her husband are super funny. Um, got to hang out with them after the race. I think, I think she's a mom. I think they have kids. Um, and she wins wings, like the wings for life Red Bull event every year. Like the woman's got wheels on flat and fast stuff. And I am like, so excited to see what that looks like at Western States. We've got a lot of speed coming in on obviously both the men's and the women's side, and they're setting up to be really good races as they always are. So the hype is building. We're very excited. <laughs> so much hype. Um, in other news, we have someone else who's really speedy, who might be at Western state start line again this year as well, just set a 100 mile world record. Uh, Camille Heron broke her own world record in the hundred mile running 1241, 12 hours and 41 minutes. It's so blazing. Fast. Um, she also won the whole thing. <laughs> so she won the USATF hundred mile national championship overall. So she beat men and women. Um, in the same time she broke, or she set a new 50 mile world record for her age group. She just recently got into the 40 to 44 year old age group, um, running a 608 for 50 miles. And then she also set a 12 hour world record of 94 and a half miles. So she just absolutely annihilated it. It was a good run by wow. Camille Heron. Like it was a really <laughs> good run. So Arlen Glick was the second, the, the first male, the second overall, and he finished in something like 1310, not slow. This guy ran like 600s last year that were all between like 13 and 1359 or something. Like he's going to be at Western States. He got a golden ticket at Havelina. Um, he was second. And then I think Alex Nichols might've toughed it out for second male, third overall. Hmm. Um, so, you know, she didn't, it's not like she beat a bunch of slouches, like no. Pat Regan was in the race. He had to drop out. So that's like, it's very, you know, when Camille Heron is on, she's on, and this is totally her bread and butter. It's her jam. It's all of the food puns that we can throw at it. And it was, I was just, yeah, it was really fun. I don't want to run 80 loops in Henderson, Nevada anytime soon, but man alive, can that woman fly? Yeah, she can. So impressive. So I think we're going to go into the next, <laughs> the next part of our long, long intro. Um, this is called color commentary, y'all. It's when we talk about things that we think are interesting in the news. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, it's kind of what we like to do. Um, and it's a Saturday afternoon, so I'm allowed to be as sassy as I want. Um, but we're going to talk about the Olympics, this whole thing that's been going on. I don't know if you've been watching it. Maybe you haven't. Maybe streaming in the U.S. is darn near impossible. So who knows what you've been able to take in. But we have some news. We've got some frustrating news. We've got some we want to crush the patriarchy news. We've got some, I don't know, some really cool things that came out of the Olympics as well. And I think we're going to start with um ski jumpers and like nordic combine and kind of wiggle in there um keely actually sent this to me via instagram and we kind of got into it via our instagram dms as well um keely what did you see when it came to the ski jumpers the, particularly the female ski jumpers at the olympics sure yeah so i'd say all of a sudden there was a ton of things blowing up my newsfeed with headlines around um, women getting disqualified in the mixed ski jumping event for improperly fitting suits. Um, and so obviously we did some digging into this um, and we found that 
three women or sorry, five women were disqualified for improperly fitting suits. And it was because these suits were too loose. And at first my like scientific brain was like, this feels wrong. Like they're too loose. That probably feels like it's a disadvantage, but actually it's an advantage because having a little bit of like looseness in the suit can actually increase the lift of the skier and keep them in the air longer, which would be an advantage to doing ski jumping. Um, anyway, so that's a little background about why the ski jumping suits are really inspected very intently, but these women were disqualified. Um, only women, no men were disqualified for the suit fitting. Um, and they were all disqualified after some of them had already competed in the same suit the day prior. It just felt a little bit weird that in this new event, so it was the inaugural year for this mixed team event where men and women were competing together for their country in the ski jump, um, that five women were disqualified for suit fitting. What did you guys think? Yeah. So it's, I, as, as Keely sent this over to me, I was like, you know, this happens a lot. Like I, as a, as a former Nordic skier and biathlete, like I follow all of the fun, seemingly obscure winter sports that we get excited about every four years. Um, welcome to niche, niche winter sports for the U S um, not ball sports. This happens a lot. And I think my hypothesis, and I'm hoping that we've got some listeners that can, I don't know, maybe, maybe we're very off base on this is that this happens a lot in the world cup as well. And they like coaches have gotten really good at sewing and they have to like constantly refit these suits. And I think it probably happens more on the women's side, just because our weight and body comp and whatnot fluctuates a little bit more probably on a day-to-day basis than in male athletes. Right. And particularly when you think of like all these women are menstruating there, they have fluctuations of hormones um, that is going to, you know, changes in subtle ways, your size and shape. Um, and so it's, to me, it's like, it's, it's like very like easy to see how the suits might not fit from one day to the next or be, between a couple days, right. If they competed in the suits just a couple days before, um, it's, you know, and they're trying, I think the other thing too, is to like, not encourage the athletes to like test in like, like, um, boxers might right with like weight category stuff where you test, you have to weigh in and then you can go eat whatever you want. Right. I think the idea there is that they don't want athletes to like have to measure or weigh in in a suit and then like try to change, you know, try to drop weight or something really quickly. So maybe there's a safety element there, but I think in part, it's just that women's bodies fluctuate a lot more than men's. So I'm not surprised that the suits change like how they fit within a very short time period. Does that make that fair? I don't know, but I think that's what's happening here. Yeah. I think also like, we don't know either, like what actually happened there. I think there's a lot of quotes going around right now because for instance, like someone was saying that they were being measured in like a completely different way than it had been before. And if that's the case, then that's a policy issue, right? Because we should be measuring suits the exact same way every time so that people can create the correct suits and sew them themselves and make sure they're fitting in corresponding to the actual standards. Um, and then another thought is that this is the first year where women didn't have to wear hip panels where they used to have to have these pads put into their suits. And some women thought it was because the Olympic committee wanted them to look more curvy. This is obviously, again, a little bit of, uh, of opinions, but I feel like it's is just like, why they it made kind of paints a bad players? picture. <laughs> Remember in the summer Olympics guys, where we talked about the softball players and how softball yeah. players for the first time ever were like allowed to wear pants or something. <laughs> mm-hmm. And like the rationale behind it was like, well, the, the, the audience might not, not know if men or women are playing. <laughs> and so I wonder if there, there's some of that in this too. We're, we're making a little bit light of this, but you know, like, I wonder, right. Like, is that people do things for weird reasons. I Policies mean, are in place for weird reasons sometimes. 
I agree. I mean, I can't, so this is, this is all news to me. So like, you know, cause the sports that I've played, right. Like I've, I'm not, you guys are bringing up a whole bunch of really good points, right. That I didn't even think about. And like this whole like lifts and why can't you like, you know, there's all these rules that could be bent, but I'm coming over here from like, you know, tennis where I'm still pissed that I couldn't like wear shorts on the court when I wanted to. Right. Like that was my uniform, you know, faux pas, but I mean, yeah, it's like coming up with all these, these subtleties, but yeah, I agree. It's a, when you get into the weeds of it, it's, it's actually, yeah, there's a lot more going on. Yeah. So all these sports undergo equipment control, right. And for this, this sport, the suits are part of equipment control in biathlon, for example, equipment control involves like them weighing, not generally your rifle, but your, like your trigger weight. And so they like, before every single competition, they put this little thing on your trigger to get the, to get the trigger to go. And it has to, it has to weigh a certain amount. It can't be too light. And so like there is an equipment control, there is a standard, there's a, there is a policy in place. And so the question here is, was there a new policy enacted? Was the policy, is the policy always fair? And, you know, were they measuring incorrectly this time? Or was it as, as quotes coming out or saying that they were measuring in a completely different way than normal, like introducing a procedural change at the Olympics is not a good idea. Um, so just kind of like, there's just broad questions in and around the sport there, I think more than anything. Totally. And I mean, in, on a positive note, this was the first Olympics where we introduced new skiing events for women. So there were some new freestyle ski events that we added this year. Again, this, this mixed team event where these disqualify this, these disqualifications happened was also new. And so we're progressing in the sport of skiing a little bit towards equality for men and women. Um, but I do know there's also some other controversy on that as well. If you want to go into that for us, Corinne. Yeah. So I think the big controversy here more than anything is the Olympics is not gender equal. And by that, I mean that there's not equal representation across sports, across all sports and the big, so ski jumping used to be one of those sports. Ski jumping was only introduced into the Olympics in 2014, um, which was very, very cool for women. Um, it's been a, ma a male sport for a long time. There's also some, there's a lot of conversation too. The women have less jumping events. The men jump off of two different hills. Um, I think they're even called like big hill and super hill or big hill and little hill or something, which is probably very wrong, but, um, the women don't have as many, they only compete on one hill. And part of that might be due to, I don't know if it's competition standard or not. And there's a lot of, I think in the running world, there's a lot more drama about like equality and distance run. Like there's a bunch of petitions going around for the NCAA about lengthening, um, cross country races to be equal length. Um, but historically, like both in cross country skiing and in biathlon as well, they're not equal distances, but it's more akin to equal time racing, i.e. in biathlon, our shortest event was a seven and a half K. The men's shortest event was a 10 K, but we raced for about equal time on the course. And I think that's an important thing at play. It's not necessarily about the overarching number. See that in mountain biking as well, where the women usually race one less lap than the men in part, because they both race for 90 minutes. So that like, it's one, it's like a time of play versus a distance, um, accomplished during that. So that's like something that I feel like is sometimes hard for an American audience for us to like wrap our heads around. Like, is like, what does that look like in fairness? The big thing though, with it not being gender equal is that we were hoping for 2026 in particular that Nordic combined for women would finally be introduced into the Olympics, Nordic combined being the sports of ski jumping and cross country skiing. Um, I have a good friend who I raced biathlon with. She's currently racing biathlon again. Um, Tara Garrity Motes, she was the world cup, um, winner and the, for the inaugural world champion for Nordic combined last year, she switched back to biathlon because, the 2026 winter Olympics panel decided the IOC decided not to add women's Nordic combined. They don't think it's internationally competitive enough yet. Um, 
which is like, I don't like, how do you grow the sport then? How do you make young women excited to stay in this sport? If there's no Olympics for them to get to is the issue there. Like Tara left, she left because there's no way there's nowhere for her to advance. There's no, there's no Olympics. They just finally got a world championship. They just finally got like a world cup season or, and before that it was only like a, not a Noram season, but a, a like a, a slightly lower tier, like a Europa cup season. Mm. Um, and so in my mind, okay, maybe the sport isn't gender equal, uh, or maybe the sport isn't as internationally competitive yet. Like they, they don't want certain country dominance. They want it to be more, they want to have enough competitors in it. They want to make it a competitive field, but the sport has to grow from somewhere. And if there's nowhere for the sport to go, there's nowhere for these 13, 14, 15 year olds to go as senior athletes, it's really hard to keep them invested in that sport and not have them leave for ski jumping or for Nordic skiing or for biathlon or some other sport where they, they can continue to climb the ranks and ultimately make their goal. Most of these athletes aren't making a ton of money. So the goal is really getting to the Olympics. The goal isn't, you know, none of them are pulling in salaries. Mm -hmm. Most of the U S biathletes, for example, join the national guard because it's the only way they can make money to have a career while being an athlete. So, um, I'm really bummed for athletes, for the the women athletes in particular, for Nordic combined. Um, Schemo is inducted for 2026. It's going to be the inaugural. It's kind of like a, they call them a um, expedition event. It's like its first trial run in the Olympics, but it's, you know, it's an official Olympic event um, that they got the nod for 2026 um, in Paris and um, Nordic combined did not. And that seems like a huge slap in the face for all those athletes. And it's really unfortunate that the Olympics is still not gender equal because of that. Rant over. <laughs> is and Corinne, is that the only winter sport that's not gender equal? Yeah, it's it's currently the only it's it, that is the reason why the Olympics are not gender equal right now is Got because it. the female ski, Nordic combine in particular has been excluded from um the Olympics right now. Why? I mean, just because they're claiming it's just not as deep. So you have to show that you are an internationally competitive event. And so they had to do things like they had to get a world championship underway. They had to get a, like a formalized world cup underway and they've, they've done it. They've stepped up and made those things happen. I don't think they were going to be included in this Olympics because they finally just got to that point in the last like two or three years. So they wouldn't have proven it in time for it to be named for the, the 2022 Olympics, but they have proven that worth for the 2026 Olympics. And then were snubbed mm-hmm. last year, basically when that announcement came out. And that was, I think, really shattering for many of those women. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, there are certain steps that any sport needs to go through to show that they can be an Olympic sport. And the Olympics are weird. They're kind of like, I don't know, they're the TV friendly version of a lot of sports like mountain biking, for example, had to be pared down to fit into the bubble that is the Olympics, like make it a friendly distance, make it TV, TV friendly, um, and so I think that, you know, sports at the show and meet these like steps and the women's Nordic combined field did in the past, in the past two, three years. And so they were snubbed in a big way, I think going into 2026. And that happened with women's ski jumping as well. Like they almost weren't added for 2014, but they let the women's, they, I think they had tried for Vancouver, the 2010 Olympics, and they had gotten snubbed for 2010, but they did allow I think Sarah Henderson, I think she jumped at those Olympics as like a forerunner, which was very cool. It was this very cool moment to see this woman jump basically in the, like the pre-event at the Olympics. They basically make sure everything's operational. Um, So that was kind of like a historic moment. And then they were finally named for the Sochi Olympics in 2014 um, after a lot of work by those athletes to get, to get qualified, to show that their sport was competitive. Um, Once again, like 
-hmm. How far do you need to move the needle? Can you move the needle like further aggressively faster to try to make those shifts? I don't know, but it's, um, it's, I think it's really unfortunate because it takes those opportunities away from a lot of um, young girls in particular in the sport right now who are trying to like have that dream of going to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really tough question as to where you draw, draw the line and and you allow or disallow. Um, well, switching to snowboarding, cause I don't ski, I snowboard. Um, yeah, I know. Hot take. Nobody, nobody really snowboards anymore. I feel like at least not my friends. No, come to Bellingham. Everyone <laughs> snowboards in Bellingham. It's oh, perfect. The Bellingham. It's the snowboarding capital of the world. I think. <laughs> well, snowboarding for the United States had a 36 year old lady get her gold medal, her first gold medal. And it was her second medal ever in the Olympics. And her first one was when she was 20 in 2006. (laughs) And it was silver. It was after this like devastating fall. I was watching some replays of her and of her fall in 2006. And it was just so sad. The, the, the second place then woman overtook her and took gold. Um, so it was really cool to watch her get redemption, um, and probably one of her last Olympics, um, or one of, you know, and she just absolutely crushed it. It is so cool to see someone just persevere for 16 years and finally get that gold medal. So it's just another really like good example to prove that there is no one age or one, you know, training regimen that fits all. And that if you just continue to train and to persevere and to treat your body right and show up, you, you can, you can do it later in life too. Yeah. And it was really cool too, because it was this big deal. She was the, the oldest American woman to win a gold medal. And then Mono Bob, which is one person bobsled, which was like a newer event added as well. I think it was to equal out men have men have two man and four man and women traditionally have only had two man bobsled. Um, so Mono Bob came about and I think in part to give bobsledders an additional event. Um, so it's just the driver. There's no brakeman. Um, and Alana Myers, who is the closing ceremony flag bearer for the U.S. Um, she's on she's been on the World Cup tour with her young son and her husband. Um, it's really cool. She got covid and couldn't be the flag bearer at the beginning of the Olympics, but got to compete. And she won both a silver in monobob and a bronze in, um, in like the two man bobsled event, um, which is so cool. I think she's got five Olympic medals now. Um, really, really cool. So she became the oldest ever American to win a medal. She's 37 years old. And then Kaylee Humphreys, who used to compete for Canada and competes for the U S now in bobsled one mono Bob. And I think became the, then became the oldest. She's like a couple months, I think older than Lindsay who won the snowboarding medal. Um, which is kind of cute that there was like these three women though, who are all 36 and 37 years old, um, mm-hmm. like crushing at the Olympics and having been around in the sport, they've all, all, all three of them have been in these Olympic sports for a long, long time. So it's really cool to see them persevere and get those medals. Yeah, man. gotta love the Olympics. But this uh, next one is a bit, ah, do we want to talk about, yeah, I guess we could talk about it. First of all, I am such a sucker. I love figure skating. I think actually pairs is like my favorite, but like figure skating is, is one of the things I love to watch at the, at the, at the winter Olympics, but, um, it's the gymnastics and, of the winter Olympics, like it's so totally, exciting and beautiful right. and all those things. Yeah. And, um, yes, I mean, and I was completely taken aback by, um, this, if there's Russian figure skater, um, and she's there's a, but then after I like watched her skate, like it was like, like she made history. She was like the first, uh, woman in competition to, to, to land, um, this quad, this like spinning around in the air, 
like four times and landing it like perfectly. She's been doing it supposedly all season, but like this is the first time at the Olympics. Um, I forget the which man had done it before her, but like this is this is like a big step forward for for women's figure skating. But um, then like learned that she's involved in this huge, you know, doping scandal right that was like uh i'm i'm don't i'm uh if it's like a month before um december she right had a positive like these, test in december okay so a couple months before um and so she was initially banned for doping but then she was allowed to comp- com- to compete um and she was cleared by the court of arbitration because it could cause her um quote-unquote irreparable harm um we should add, we should add that the skater is 15 years old. Okay. 15, so yeah. it's, it's, she is a child. Um, right. and there's like a long history. There's a bunch of issues going on here that are multi. Yeah, so is it, is it a good thing? Like, do you think that, I mean, there's so much, did you so see much... her, did you see her second skate, but like the devastation, like just like yeah. the absolute, like insanity mm-hmm. that took place. Like she fell all over the ice. Like, like you could just tell times. that she was like, having a, like a, a crisis out there. Like it was mm-hmm. really hard to watch that program. Right. And I, I think it took it, it incredible, regardless of her status of, uh, you know, of doping or not, I still think it took incredible courage for her to even get on the ice and to, and to continue to perform. But I mean, like you said, she's 15, like she's probably not, it's probably not her decision if she's going to, if she's going to do it or not. Um, yeah, there's, so I'm going to give a tiny bit of background here. Um, I don't know. I, I figure skated until I was like from like six years old through high school. Um, so I like have a, a deep seated love. I'm not very, I'm not, I'm not very flexible. I can't do like the cool, um, I'm not holding my leg up in my head, but I loved jumping. So quads are pretty cool. Um, so there's two things here. I think the first thing to discuss is probably like the general Russian, like issue at the Olympics, right? They're not even competing as, you know, as a, as, as Russia, they're competing as the Russian Olympic committee, which is like a bunch of drama. Like there is like, like what we call it systemic. There's like system driven doping, um, within the Russian athletic federation, like federation in general. Like we're seeing like there's historical stuff that happens every single Olympics of like, should they compete? Should they not compete? Um, I don't know that we have a good answer. It's like hard to punish the athletes, but really it's the system that's, at fault here. Like I've got one of my old biathlon coaches competed for the Soviet union. And he's like, very honestly, like we took our vitamins. Like, I have no idea what I was like, what I was taking, but like, and I'm sure, I'm sure that he was doped. I don't know, but it's like that, that seems to be part of the issue here is that you have these young athletes. They're told what to do. Like, yes, they're, they're humans. They're making conscious decisions, but it's, I don't know. We're talking about 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 year old year olds. Like how much control do they really have? Um, I think the biggest like comparison that's been drawn is between, um, this athlete and Shakari Richardson, not being able to compete after the positive, um, the positive THC test during Olympic trials. And like the big issue there is they're saying that the biggest difference is that Shakari Richardson is black and this athlete is white. Um, and I think that, that, I don't know that that really speaks to the heart of the issue here. Like I'm not part of the arbitration committee, obviously, but I think that it's like, there are a lot of things at play and it, it feels really messy. And I don't think it, it doesn't seem like it's fair to this athlete who's like caught up in the middle of it. It doesn't seem like it's fair to any of her competitors. Like there's, I feel like the coach, the coach needs like the woman who coaches all these athletes needs to be, I think she is under investigation. She's caused a lot of like, she's probably caused irreputable harm. Like there's tons of reports. These these are all open source reporting um, in English that's come out about 
issues with this coach in particular. She was awarded coach of the year, like last year by the international skating union, like by the, by, by the title organization, despite the fact in part, because all these women, all these girls that she's coaching can land quads, like quote unquote, a very big deal. Um, but they're all not all, but a lot of them have struggled with anorexia. A bunch of women are retired by the ages of like 19, 20 years old because they can't, they're, they're in too much pain. They've got back problems. They've got hip problems. Part of that's probably from the training regimen. Part of that is probably from this like culture of disordered eating. Um, they've had athletes in this program quoted as saying like, I eat two shrimp for dinner and I'm full or I, and this is in part how they're landing quads is by the, her take is like, we're just going to make them as small as possible. And so it's like, should quads even be allowed then in women's figure skating? And it's like, you can't punish an athlete for being able to do the coolest trick ever. And at the same time, like the way that they're getting there is by like starving themselves and like a lot of them retiring super early because they're getting hurt. Um, so it's just ugh, like one part is a doping issue and one part's a coaching issue. And it's very hard to pull them apart because I think they're inextricably linked together. Totally. And, and I don't know who should be, who should get the blame here, right? Like we don't know if it should be the athlete or it should be the coach, but I think what for me, this really highlighted is just the inconsistency of the international Olympic committee and how it seems to me that when there are these issues that arise, they get to choose how they want to deal with it. And it's not because of a certain um, jurisdiction that they've written up and certain guidelines that they have. It's really seems like they're just deciding based off of their thoughts. And that should not be how a governing body is running um, like their doping regulation of one of the biggest stages of sports. And so if we do compare it to the cannabis scandal or to other scandals that have gone on, it should all be something that is very black or white. It should not be a gray area of, well, this will cause this athlete harm, but this one won't cause this athlete harm. You know, like you can't decide like, oh, some athletes should be able to get away with it and some shouldn't. It should just be a lot less gray. And I think that's one thing that's really highlighted for me was that there's really no straightforward way to regulate this, that they're just kind of flying by the seat of their pants. And I think that is the bigger issue that's really concerning to me here is that's who's governing, who's competing and who's not. Yeah. And I think though, the one thing too, is that there's a difference between like USADA and, um, like making a, making a rule with like Shakira Richardson versus WADA versus the um, court of arbitration in sport, like who, who is making that decision. But I think something that just came up in my mind while you were talking about this, Keely, was also this idea um, that like, there needs to be this like very strict, straightforward thing. And my one, my one thing that I'm thinking of with this, in this specific case with this young athlete, this minor, right? They're under 18. They're not an adult. When athletes have a contaminated supplement, right? They're allowed to prove fault mm -hmm. or no fault, right? We've seen it with track athletes who have had contaminated supplements like um, Brenda Martinez, I think had a contaminated supplement. Um, it was an antidepressant she was taking and it had a diuretic in it and they tested they tested for it. And sure enough, she had this contaminated supplement. Like, so she, she was not, there was no intent on her end to take it. And she's an adult though, right? So she's tried, like in a way she's tried as an independent, as an adult. When you have an, a 15 year old in, in a Russian sporting system in which it's like, I don't know that you can prove intent on a 15 year old in that case versus Shakira Richardson said like, yeah, I did. I did this thing. Does that mean that Shakira Richardson or should have been punished? I don't know. Does that mean that THC should be banned? I don't think THC should be banned. Um, but I do, and that's a conversation for another day, but I, I think it's hard to prove fault 
in a minor, in a system in which like parents aren't involved oftentimes, right? Like these kids are at sports schools under, under the direct leadership of this one coach who's got a bad, a bad like rap sheet at this point. Um, so it's like, in my mind, it's like, how do you, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I'm not, once again, we're not the court of arbitration, but it's really confusing in that sense too. Like, how do you, it needs to be case by case, but there also needs to be clear rules and guidelines. And I think that's like, we're like the ethical side of us and the moral side of us and the like practical human, like the, like the empathy side of us is all caught up in one thing. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to break those apart, like how we feel about it innately, how we feel about if this was our sport innately. And then like, also what do the rules say? And I think that that's like, that's like our hearts versus our brains in this situation. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. It's so sad. It's devastating. It is. Yeah. Last bit of drama. I told you to tell you mostly good things, but the good thing about this next piece was that the out, the outpouring of support for this athlete and for us being angry for on behalf of this athlete was so powerful. So I, I got, I don't know how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of DMS, um, into my Instagram about this. And that felt good. It felt like our, our uniform anger felt really amazing. Um, I was like, we're burning it down. So, um, after Jesse Diggins won a historic bronze medal in the classic spring sprint last week, um, Matt Futterman, a New York times reporter, he's been writing about sports for a long time. I believe he works as an editor as well. Had the, I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know how this got past an editor, but in his report of her race, he had the audacity to write, and this is in quotes because it's his words in a sport that has so many women with massive shoulders and thighs Diggins looks like a Sprite in her racing suit. And it's not clear exactly where she gets her power from. <laughs> ah, oh my God. Right? Like we're not supposed to talk about women like this. Like it's 2022. There's no reason for this. I'm going to read two more quotes and then you guys can add your two cents. Um, faster skier, which is basically the I run far of the, of the Nordic skiing world, um, wrote an article about like about the media outcry because all these former Nordic skiers took to Instagram and Twitter calling Matt Futterman and the New York times out. Um, I know some of the younger athletes on the U S ski team in the Nordic events were asked about this. They kind of left Jesse, Jesse, Jesse smart to say, I don't read anything written about me. It's not good for me. I just don't read it. Um, so my roommate was quoted in this article, Olivia Amber, Amber's response to, um, this, quoted in a faster skier article says the way the media often covers athletics objectifies women and excludes people that don't conform to the myth of an ideal body type. The language used in the recent New York times piece is yet another example of this broader issue in women's sport. It's a clear oversight that demonstrates a knowledge on the author's subject. And, and for anyone that knows Jesse's like struggled with an eating disorder and has talked about it publicly and wrote a book about it. So just an aside. And then she goes on to say, featuring the size and shape of women's bodies devalues the lifetime of hard work these athletes put into achieving the pinnacle of their sport. Faster skier then goes on to reach out to the New York Times. Futterman says, I can't say anything. You have to talk to New York, New York Times communications office on this. So New York Times responds, which is horrible. And they say, in quotes again, we aim in our sports coverage to cover male and female athletes accurately, equally, and fairly. We believe sometimes their physiques are relevant to their performance. In this case, our description of cross-country skier Jesse Diggins' noticeably different physical attributes in contrast to others in her sport 
were an important and relevant detail. Her dominance in the sport was also subject to a lengthy feature on February 4th. Like that was somehow going to like apologize for it. (laughs) It's just, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. Like Nordic skiing, like has always felt like this safe space and like this idea that like all the women and all the men look different. Like they're all competing at the highest level. There isn't quote unquote one body type. Like all these women and men are so strong and like at the, the height of their sport. And it's just like the audacity of this dude this white male to like write about like to one, like call Jesse a Sprite, but two like to tell everyone else that they're huge is like, I don't know. It just seemed uncalled for and so unnecessary. And so much so that I went back and read every single New York times article that week on the, on Olympic coverage to see if they talked about any of the male athletes in and that did way. They? No, they did not. That's exactly. No, one, mm-hmm. no yeah. one was like, wow, Chen's quads are so big. No wonder he can land no. all those quads. Like no mm-hmm. one, no one said that. Yep. Like, I did the exact I, same thing. Yeah. That's, they talked a lot that's, about women's hair. Like it's insane. Like blonde locks flowing out of her helmet. It's like, is that really a descriptive characteristic necessary to get the point of your piece across? No. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And that's what frustrated me so much about, about this whole thing is because like, she literally, Jesse just made history. Like talk about the performance. Like there, and her there teammate was, no- was fourth. Like her teammate was fourth. In right. The and like, if Jesse hadn't been third, Rosie Brennan would have made history with an insanely good fourth place performance. Like, come on, they're missing the point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I had a lot of guys also reach out to me, Corinne, um, saying, oh, well, you know, you're kind of call, you're kind of like not being on both sides of the coin here. Cause you wouldn't make this big of a deal if a man was called out for his physique. And, and I kind of wrote back like, no, I, I definitely would. And, and it's never talked about in the same way as female physique. It's never called out as a derogatory thing. And it's never called out as something that is in hindering their performance or making them different, right? Mm -hmm. It's always called out in males as something that is making them super powerful. It's always a positive when it's talked about, which it's not as frequently talked about. And so that's where I felt like the difference really was. Um, And in general, I think we should just move away from commenting on these things in general. We don't need to talk about that. Yeah. You see it more in color commentary, like people that are like live color commentary about a sport. Oftentimes I think more than anything in male sports, it probably happens mostly in like football and and basketball where they comment on like a a man's height more than anything, I think, but it's not like we're like, Oh, Jim Walmsley or Jared. It's not like we're like, I don't know, talking about their stature even. I don't know. It's, it's not called out in the same way. It's not, it's not highlighted in the same way. I do think that Yes, I'm sure it happens to male athletes, but not in the same way or to the same extent it seems to happen in female athletes. And if we're wrong, send us those articles. Happy to to happy to call out those reporters as well. Yeah, happy to but be wrong. Necessary. Happy right. to be wrong on this. And would love thing, to be wrong. Would love to be wrong on this. Absolutely. And and one of the things I loved, Corinne, you retweeted it for exactly what our coach Adam St. Pierre said. But like the main, the main issue is like, of course, New York Times is missing the point by reporting about that and not about the performance itself, but also what then happens about, you know, the downstream effects of like a young girl getting into sports. And if she reads this, this, this article and thinks, oh, but then what am I supposed to look like? If, what if she looks like she has, you know, big muscles and, and, you know, and thighs and all the stuff that this guy's describing and will she think that that's, that's negative or that she has to change her body to, to, to perform a certain way or to fit in. Like that's the, another issue that I just, I, yeah. Yeah. It's not good. I think we're going to end 
Anything else to add, Keely? Otherwise, we'll end our rant there for today and we'll move into the the meat and potatoes of our podcast. Because somehow this is not the meat and potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I guess I I did want to just say one thing on a really positive note is to kind of echo what you said initially, Corinne, is that the amount of love in the female athlete community right now for women who are experiencing these kind of out calls from the media and, you know, feeling really out out there um, is amazing. Right. Like we're all rallying together right now. And there were some cool like women's moments throughout the Olympics too. Like I can't remember which snowboarding event it was, but they literally like all like pile on top of each other when like one woman upsets the other woman for the gold. Like the woman who got all of a sudden got bronze, like jumps on this woman and they're like celebrating together. Like that kind of camaraderie, like seeing those moments of the Olympics has been like goosebump inducing. So like we're doing good ladies. We're going to keep doing good. (laughs) Okay. On that note, we're going to move on to our last of our second to last of two Strava segment stories. And we've been working on the series for a long time. So it's kind of cool that we're like, oh my God, it's almost like not almost over in like a happy way. It's like, wow, we've like done this thing. Um, and of course we could not have done it without the support of our friends over at Strava and then our amazing um, partner company. I don't know what we want to call them. Free trail, like big shout out to those guys for helping us make this happen. Week after week, um, we couldn't do it without you. And so what we're going to do today, akin to last week, we're going to bring you an interview from an incredible individual out of the Houston area. His name is Patrick Presgrove. We brought Patrick on to talk about the enjoyment he gets out of being a run crew leader, um, his journey from birth with both a cleft palate, which you'll probably hear a little bit um, in his speech, and then um, battling through many major surgeries, which ultimately as a teenager left him as a double amputee above the knee. So both legs, um, and then finding running as an amputee and as an adaptive athlete and the work he does now with those nonprofits around adaptive athletics to lower the barrier of entry for other adaptive athletes. We learned a lot from talking with Patrick, um, and we really hope you enjoy the following interview. I am Patrick Presgrove, a runner from Houston, Texas, CEO of the nonprofit Team Catapult, uh, run club captain. Um, I was born with a rare birth defect. They gave me a cleft lip and a cleft palate, um, and it altered the way my legs were formed. So when I was born, I was actually given up at birth. So I was adopted right away within maybe in the first month. I had lots of operations to try to correct my legs. Um, I'm to date, I probably have had 30 plus operations, mainly around allowing me to walk. I could not walk until I was six. Even then, the way I walked was uh, abnormal. So I can know severe arthritis in both my knees. By the time I was a teenager, I was in a wheelchair full-time, meaning at home and at school, uh, going into high school. So I had elective above-knee amputations on both legs in 2004, going into high school. I grew up in high school in a small town, started commuting to go to the university in Houston, uh, moved back. I was born in Houston. I moved back to finish college. Started running about six plus years ago now um, at the advice and the encouragement of a very good friend of mine who's also an MPT and a 
an athlete at the highest level, uh, we share a clinician about it makes our prosthetic leg. Uh, here in this neutral world, I didn't know if possible. And he said, hey, you know you can run. I said, no, I, I never knew that. And he said, well, here's how you do it. Here's how you go about getting the equipment you need. So I applied for it. I got it. Put it away in my closet for about a year because I was scared to try anything new. And more than that, scared to fail and let myself down. Um, finally got off, off the couch and started running about a little more than six years ago. Ran my first 5K in 2016 in about 45 minutes. And here we are now. I've done four marathons, including Boston twice. Uh, as of Sunday, I've run probably 15 or 16 half marathons. I've done a half Ironman triathlon, a whole bunch of story stuff in between. Um, in that journey, I found a nonprofit here in Houston that really helped get me where I am today called Team Catapult. They were, they were founded about a year before I started running. I found them in 2016 and met a community of other adaptive athletes that I never even knew was out there. I started trying to volunteer with them and give back some of my time in 2018. And as of 2020, I am the CEO of that's quite the list. And I think all of us are sitting here too, being like, wow, that those are more half marathons and full road marathons. And I think the three of us have probably run all combined, not necessarily in our skill set. And I guess kind of the next question I have for you, particularly for this audience, obviously you were dealt like kind of a crazy hand um, at birth from the get-go. And I'm wondering, you know, what what was that like growing up like that? And then I guess for the audience too, like, what does it mean to be an adaptive athlete? Like how, like, how is that part of your identity? That's a very good question. To answer the first part about what it's like, I've been asked this a lot and I have the same answer. It's not necessarily life, anything. It just is life. So you just wake up and it's not like I wake up saying, oh, I don't have my leg, or oh, I'm in a wheelchair. I just wake up and it's another day uh, as me. You really, you really don't see the complications and the adversity that you're going through until either you're, you can look back on it later or like maybe you have a really tough day and you're like, wow, this, this really sucks. I wish I wasn't disabled or I wish I didn't have this wrong with me. Um, but in general, it's not so much that it's life for me, that it was life anything, it was just another day. So going from not walking to walking was just like, oh, this is just what my life is. And then going from walking to a wheelchair uh, is just what my life was. And then going from that to walking again was like, well, I, in the moment, I understood how special that was. But it was also like a part of the journey. Like the, for me, there, was, there wasn't another option. So um and being an adaptive athlete how much of it is a part of my identity um it can't it, it will be to the extent you let it like i show up with a race and i'm usually one of less than a handful of amputees and i'm probably the only double amputee on top of that i'm probably the only above the double amputee that maybe ever run that race ever um that's something you notice. And, you know, I'm, I'm hard to miss when I walk 
up to the start line and I'm, I'm on the fourth. Um, but it took a little time, but now I, I use it to my advantage. Like I understand I have eyes on me, whether that's people in my community or not. So I just use it as an opportunity to first and foremost, show myself what I can do. You know, when I hit an NPR, that's for me. But just the fact that I'm out there is huge for, it can be huge for people disabled or otherwise. So I understand what that means now and the responsibility I have with my ability. So I just use that to my advantage now. It's an opportunity to really do something I never knew was possible before, even when I had my legs. I couldn't run. I mean, I, I've been disabled my whole life. So it wasn't until I found this that it gave me an opportunity to be a little more quote unquote normal. Like I can go out and go for a run almost any time now. It looks a little different for me than others, but it just helps me be a part of a whole new community. I never even knew was there. I didn't know running was a thing growing up. Um, and I really didn't know running as an athlete was even possible. So, um, yeah, <laughs> like the article said, I would, I, I would wear pants or jeans and walk into a room and, you know, put myself in the corner and hang out and talk to whoever might approach me. But now I love being in a pair of shorts and, you know, that's just me now. And, you know, float in a room at a big running that like just, catching up with everyone. So that wouldn't have happened without running, helping me work through a lot of stuff mentally, but then just the acceptance of the run community, like they were just so accepting. I would show up at Memorial Park a lot on my own, and that's the run hub in Houston. Like everyone I know now, I a lot of them I met there, I would just show up by myself. We know only at that exactly there, and, you know, maybe that whole day. Um, and they're just like, hey, Patrick, what's up? You know, they come run with me. Um, and they say, hey, are you doing this? Are you doing that? Why not? You want to sign up for this? You want to sign up for that? So they just brought me and then the whole Catapult family in. It was just, it was just nice and seamless and natural. So without that welcoming aspect, um, I couldn't have built what I built. I would say for someone that's adaptive, we're, I mean, we are at disadvantage because we have our disabilities, but the other side of that is it's disarming to walk up to a new person like if I was another color or if I look any different, you know, I'm, I maybe could not just walk up to whoever I want and have the same welcome invite the first time I met them. But as a person with disability, I can walk up to almost anyone. And they're most likely immediately disarmed. Like they're just like, oh, what's up? You know? So it's kind of it's kind of something that you if you realize that you learn how to use it to your advantage in that you're all like my icebreaker is me walking up with a pair of shorts. Like we automatically have something to talk about. Um so as opposed to the other types of prejudices, prejudices you brought up, I would say having a disability is as hard as it may be for us that have it. It's one of the easier ones to walk up and join a new community with. 
to the point that it's accessible. If I put it in one sentence, I would I would say it like that. It's probably the most disarming aspect about myself to join, like if I wanted to go join a new community, but it can also be difficult if that community is not aware of what someone like me might need and it's not accessible. So, you know, if it's not accessible, that's what I come in. I'm here to help make you accessible. So for those of you who can't see our faces, there was literally like an aha moment when he talks about what it was like growing up, you know, with going going through all this, going through these surgeries, this aha moment for all of us of like, oh, it just, it is like, I think, how does, how do you all take that as a reflection or an ability to shift how you're looking at your own life? I think that like, to me, that was like, oh my goodness, like, like frame shift perspective there. Yeah. So I was listening actually, it was either before or after, I think it was after we, we had this interview with Patrick and it was a, a, this, this podcast on resilience. Um, the human lab, he kind of like talks about, uh, he like kind of digests scientific papers and how so many more people were, were, were resilient as a human species and Patrick, how he just was like, so matter of fact about it. And, you know, this is, this is my life. Like he's just a perfect example and embodiment of like what it means to just, he doesn't see it as a hindrance. He just, he, he finds some, he's, he's living his life. He's, you know, he has, you know, we maybe see it as obstacles, but he certainly doesn't. And I think that's also kind of goes to his success and his whole outlook um, because I think inherently he's, he's resilient and he's just, you know, finding a way to do something that he loves and that he cares about. Yeah. That obstacles piece, I think is what's important. He doesn't see it as an obstacle. And that to me was like, I'm never going to complain about anything ever again. (laughs) Totally. And I think like you can apply this to any part of life, right? Because it almost makes me feel like pretty silly for getting caught up in things like injuries or something that's very flitting, right? Like something that's not going to be around forever because it feels like something that is very like stuck in the sand. Like it is now it is this. And now my life is different and it is this, but if we can try to like reframe our minds to let us think about these little hiccups that happen as just part of the journey that doesn't change anything about us or like what we view our day to day life as like, then I think it's just going to be easier to navigate through these challenges that are going to arise in our lives. And his perspective on it was just so refreshing. Yeah. I also liked his perspective of being like, well, I didn't think I was ever going to I, I never it occurred to me that I could run and then having running just become part of his life and who he is and what he does. I think that was a really like, I'm, I'm not to say that like, we're glad anything happens, but he's kind of like, Oh, it happened maybe for like, not for a reason, but it's like, Oh, I, I now can do this thing. I want to do this thing. Or initially I think he was scared to do the thing. And I think that was really interesting and really relatable as well of like, was embarrassed or like unsure if it was going to work. And so didn't initially when he got this pros- like got his first prosthesis of like, Oh, I can go run now. It was like, I don't, I don't know if I want to. And I think we all have had that sensation in a way of like, Oh, should I sign up for this race? Like, Oh no, maybe people will think of me in a certain way if I don't do well. So I think that was really interesting that we all have those moments independent of like what the current not hurdle, but like maybe mental barrier is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He almost flipped the equation, right? Like we all find ourselves identified as a runner. Right. And he almost like 
took running and let it identify himself as a human, because I feel like through running, he was able to gain the confidence to then branch out and make new friends and try new things and be confident to wear shorts and show off his prosthetics. And it was almost like a role reversal of running where it really helped him to find himself, which was really, 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 really cool to hear. Yeah. I just brought, it brought him out of his shell, which I think is, I don't know. I hope running does that for more and more people right? Like I want running to bring that feeling out of, out of other humans. Yeah. Yeah. And running is the great equalizer, right? Like at the end of the day, we can all do it in some, in some way. And he really embodies that by showing that it gave him the confidence to do it. And now he's able to go out and help other people find running. Um, And so I think it'll be really cool to kind of cut back to the show and really talk through or have him talk us through how he now uses his platform and his, his day job as a way to make running um, more tangible for people who wouldn't have been able to do it before. Sadly, there's only a handful of nonprofits doing what Catapult is in Houston. There are multiple, but there aren't many. Um, they are an opportunity for deaf and athletes to have a community and find other resources they need, not just each other. Um, the importance of nonprofits as a whole, I mean, I would not be doing anything I'm doing now without them. Uh, it was a catapult, but it was another nonprofit that got me my running blades in the first place. One running, one running blade is multiple thousands of dollars and they're not covered by insurance and they're not in a store like you can't go out to the local big box store and grab one off the shelf like it's highly customized highly specialized and it's very expensive insurance doesn't mean any of this stuff medically necessary and that is a running blade a sport wheelchair a racing wheelchair anything like that for exactly a hand cycle so without a nonprofit, unless someone has other ways of funding that equipment, they're they're not gonna get it. They're not gonna have any access to it. Um, so how important are they? They are everything. Like they make the world of adaptive sports go around. Yeah, that's a huge, that's a huge barrier to entry, right? We've talked a lot about barriers to entry on our show. Um, for, like be it race, be it socioeconomic status, be it gender. Um there, there are barriers to, to everyone's entry point into sport. And that's a huge barrier, a huge financial barrier for people. And so I'm wondering, kind of piggybacking off of that, what can our listening audience do to help to get involved with these communities, to give back to those communities so that we can get more people involved, to get more kids active, to get more adults active within those adaptive communities? The biggest way you can help any nonprofit, whether they're aim at the athletes or not is funding. So if you're aware of them, help spread the word. And if you're able to give, give. Um, like Catapult in particular, if you're in our area, we always need guides and people on the ground and, you know, hands on the race course. So come on out and guide, be involved, get, get involved in a race that you met. Um, I would say, uh, as someone that has never guided before personally, I can tell you from organizing our events for years now, guiding any given race, even a 5K, there's going to be so much rewarding than running that 5K by yourself. I have people that have, they might have run an 18-minute 
PR in your 5K, but they sent Guyman a half hour 5K for a completely blind athlete was so much more rewarding and fulfilling than anything they've ever done before. Catapult right now, we in 2019 hosted the very first ever uh, paratriathlon training camp in the Gulf Coast region. Um, we got on the radar of Team USA. We had Team USA coaches in to become coach in our 2021 camp. 2020 got postponed, of course. And then COVID took us down again. So the 2021 camp did not happen. So we are aiming for 2022 our return with uh, all the same coaching talent. And, you know, hopefully our greatest turnout yet in our second year, four years in. Um, other than that, for Catapult, we, you know, more local races. And our main, a big program of ours is our annual grant program where anyone worldwide and adapted athlete can apply and we make you apply for funding, which is exactly where they come in, just like the nonprofit that got me my first running legs. Um, we gave out, I think, over 60,000 worth of grant in 2021, um, over 50 in 2020, I think over 60 in 2019. So we're just going to keep that going. And our actual, our annual fundraising gala is in uh, two weeks. And that is where 99% of our money comes for the whole year. So we're really hoping for a good turnout. And if they're on our calendar and you're an adapted athlete, even if you're coming from out of town, we'll pay for your entry. And if you need, you know, accommodations, we'll hook you up and anything you need. If you're a blind athlete coming from out of town, we'll find you a guide. Um, really anything you need to start and finish. I would say there is a lack of awareness of what we may need. We need an adaptive athlete. Like we might need some type of accommodation. I mean, that could look like a number of different things. It might be very time consuming for a race director to make those things happen, or it might take five seconds. Um, but there was a lack of awareness that not only I, but Team Catapult really helped bring awareness to here in our community in Houston. If you're listening to this, help raise awareness. Like, if you heard this podcast and you're aware of everything I just said, so now that you know, help spread the word. Like, there's no, there's no reason not to. The easiest way is to spread awareness. So, you know, if you heard about issues that you agree need some attention brought to them, that's what I'm here trying to do. So help me do that. I'm going to ask to consult on a couple of race course developments to make it like hand cycle friendly or wheelchair friendly, where a local 5K, 10K might go over a curve. Well, if you're a blind athlete, uh, you know, that's a whole nother step. As, as Corinne would tell you, if you're in a hand cycle, that, that's probably not going to happen. If you're in a wheelchair, it's going to be pretty difficult. So that would be one way, like making things like ADA accessible. Um, really, a, a big one is helping people understand that, A, you know, we are training the same way everyone else trains, but we, I wouldn't say we deserve, but we, to make it fair, we kind of need our own time and category. So like Boston, as a whole category for AWD, athletes with disabilities, 
And on top of that, they go by disability type. They're separated by visually impaired and mobility impaired and wheelchair and hand cycle, just like the Houston Marathon. Um, not all races have that. You know, I would go run a race and I might run my best race ever, but I'm not going to put him because they're timing me with everyone else, all, you know, every other able body. So just the recognition of, you know, understanding like, hey, we're, they're here. They're competing against you and each other. So let's give them a category. Like that's a big push. And it really doesn't take much. I mean, it's all it's all done online, all the timing. So I mean, it only takes someone to sit down and program in a new category and some subcategories. Um and even building on that, like having a prize purse for our category, if it's like a big race, like Boston just started paying out prize money for the AWE category as of 2021. Um, there's not many others doing that. And I mean, there's, I mean, there's just so much more you could dive into, but those are the main ones, the recognition and for, in the form of having our own category. And then within that, understanding that we're not all the same, like you're not, I mean, you're not going to time me against a hand cycle because they're basically riding a bicycle and I'm running. Um, understanding that there's different types of disabilities. I'm a double above the amputee. My time and my effort are not the same as someone that's missing a leg below the knee on one side. So it's just trying to raise awareness and playing the game of like how much how much capability do you have in your timing and your race company and you know trying to find that happy medium. There's a lot more inclusion, like the Houston Marathon, for example, is in its eighth year of having an, an athlete with disability corral. This was the eighth year, and that's huge. But there are races that have taken place longer than the Houston Marathon that just did their 50th year this weekend that have never even thought about it. So, it's, you know, it's not like, it's not that they're prejudiced against this, but there's just a lack of awareness. So that's been one thing I've watched transform, especially in our community. Like there's many more races that have our own category and, you know, different accommodation. It's like the old saying, if you build it, they will come. If you acknowledge this, we'll show up. I think my biggest takeaway from this was just being like, wow, we can't unknow any of this. Now that, now that I know these things, I think about it constantly. I think about these barriers constantly. I think about the things that I didn't know were barriers like curbs constantly. And I have worked with and have guided like visually impaired athletes. And now I still like this, like this brought even more like of an understanding into this world of adaptive sports and not even the traditional barriers we would think about, but just like not having to ask these questions, right? Like having to be able to like go to a race, like how nice would it be as an adaptive athlete to go to a race website and just have the information provided for you instead of having to track down the RD or the person in charge of volunteers and ask all these questions over and over and over again. Like how infuriating must that be? And now I can't stop thinking about it. And it's my new life mission to help fix whatever I can. I, I don't know if you all feel the same way. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's like, well, not really putting yourself in someone else's shoes, but like listening to his perspective and then really realizing how, how different, you know, different things are. And then seeing like 
you know, I think of, you know, someone that, that I know, like Dave, Dave Mackey, like how, you know, then he runs, he runs trails and like, you know, he, but he was doing that himself. Like, I don't think that he really had like a group, um, you know, to, to hold on to who's kind of like navigating it himself. And so I think it's amazing what, what Patrick is doing to be able to, to encourage other people and saying, yeah, like you don't have to just accept this. Like you deserve more. I mean, that deserve is the wrong word, but, um, I think you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Like the, the bare minimum is more like, this, right. like, the, like, <laughs> yes. like this is, should be, this should not be like an right. exception. This should be like expected. Mm-hmm. Like what, like right. what, yeah. 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 And, and as he's talking through different guidelines, he gives to race directors around, you know, giving different podium positions for people with different disabilities. It all makes really obvious sense to me because as he said, you don't want to pair a hand cyclist who's basically riding a bicycle to someone that has blades, but I'm guessing that up until recently race organizers didn't think about that. Right. They just said, Oh, we'll just create a disabled category period. And that's good enough. And so I think the work that he's doing to really provide races with this knowledge and like help them improve their courses and make them more, more like easily accessible for adaptive athletes is just so admirable. And it really opened my eyes to just how many different kinds of athletes there are who we don't think about on a day-to-day basis, but who need access to sport to a greater degree than we do. And, and how can we, how can we make that, how can we bridge that gap for them? Yeah. I thought it was really interesting too. Like, obviously I think most of us are aware of some nonprofits either locally to us or nationwide that help to, um, that work specifically with adaptive athletes. I've got a bunch of um, friends who've worked for the U S Paralympic teams, um, working with those adaptive athletes and recruiting athletes into those programs and getting them, um, appropriate sports gear to do those things like the para ski teams, um, and para biathlon teams, um, that will be competing in Beijing shortly. Um, like it's, to think about like, how can we directly impact those organizations? Um, or how, like just thinking like, it's really expensive. Our sport generally speaking is not necessarily the most expensive outside of race entries, but like thinking all of a sudden of like, we just need a pair of shoes, but an adaptive athlete needs a whole lot more than that. Right. Like running blades are not cheap and they can't just go run on their normal prosthetic, or maybe they need to be on a hand cycle or a sit ski or whatever it might be to be able to move their body, to be able to experience the outdoors, to be able to compete either for the first time ever, or again, like it's not, it's not as easy. Like we have it way easy in so many regards. Like I, I, on one hand I knew, right. Like you can assume that the the expense of those sports would be much higher. On the other hand, it's hard to know like you're not necessarily directly involved in that world. And so I thought that was very eye-opening to be like, of course the barrier of entry is higher. How do we lower it? How do we make this, you know, besides just donating your money or your time, like how do we, besides maybe it's just sharing the message mm-hmm. lowers the barrier by making more people aware. But that to me was very, I don't know, it like continue further opened my eyes yeah, to the well, adaptive athlete scenario. Yeah. And, and at the very end, he says something along the lines of if you make it, if you, if you, if you call us, we will come or something like that. He quotes a video and it's so true. Right. And how can we help him give races the knowledge so that they can advertise to these people who, who clearly want to push their bodies in these ways so that we can start diversifying the amount of people that can come run at these races. And so, yeah, my head is spinning as to how we can try to start incorporating a lot of these things into the trail world. Um, and so if anybody has ideas, um, send them to us for sure. But I think it really just starts with working with Patrick to get some 
some information just to into the into the hands of race directors so that they, they at least know what it entails to make a race um like adaptable mm-hmm. yeah that, that was i think it's more common in in the road in the road world right road marathon like majors like big city road marathons i think have adaptive categories and all that kind of stuff and they've got more of this set up already but you're right like how do we bridge that into into trail and ultra the athlete that I've worked with the most is this visually impaired athlete. And it's a lot of work for him to go around and contact these race directors and be like, hi, I, I know we can't have pacers till mile 60, but I can't see, is it okay for me to have a, a pacer earlier? And then he came to me and said, hi, not only do I want to be able to like have these guides, but I want to use them effectively. They're not like, like, it was really cool to figure out like how to use a guide effectively. Like how do we like help him perform at his highest level with this guide, with this assistance versus it being like, okay, I'm going to figure out how to get to mile 60 and then pick up my first pacer type of thing. So it was like this really interesting thing where he had to spend so much time on the back end talking to race directors over and over and over again to make sure that they were aware of the situation to make sure that the, 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 the person in charge of the aid station wasn't going to tell his guide that they couldn't be there all of a sudden, right? Like to make sure that communication chain is across the whole race of that. And that falls on the athlete's shoulders. And it's like, well, maybe this needs to fall on the race director's shoulders. And how do we, as, as Keely just said, how do we get that information to the race director so that adaptive athletes don't have to ask so that information is provided to them instead? We learned so much from Patrick's interview. I hope you all learned so much from the interview too. I think we had so many aha moments while we sat down and had this conversation with him. Again, if you want to learn more about Patrick and Patrick's story, um, Strava didn't do a video on Patrick. Strava did a write-up on Patrick and his run club, the Freaks Come Out at Night Run Club. It's a really cool group. You can find a link to that in our show notes. And we also encourage you to go and check out all the other videos that are now live um, as part of the Strava segment stories that will, once again, that all that is linked in our show notes below. Um, And I think right now we're going to move on to our Society Slam. Again, Society Slam is brought to you by our friends and sponsor of our podcast over at Aura Ring. We're excited to be using their product and we're going to continue to use their product and get to talk about it more coming up just a few episodes from now. So hold on to your horses for that one. Um, Hillary, you just told us that you got a really cool society slam that you wanted to share. Can you tell us all about it? Yeah. So uh, this is a, an added bonus. I didn't actually um, get this until a few days ago, but I was at this book club. It's called the Ornery Mule Book Club. And they're actually talking about my book, which was kind of cool, but we got into some really cool and like pretty intimate discussions. And there was one woman in particular, um, there was one woman in particular and she was devastated because she was going through an injury. Um, she was the victim of domestic violence and she's been a runner her whole life but she ended up losing her leg and now she's learning how to run again um in a whole new you know a whole new world she's she now has been fitted with a prosthetic and she's learning how to walk and she's got her uh, her goals set on running and she was asking you know how do you find community how do you find you know people to relate to to keep going and um so i told her that she's in luck. I told her actually about the freaks come out at night and Patrick, um, and his run club. And, and, you know, that this, these communities there, they might not be in person where she is, but they're only, you know, just a a click of a button away. And so I told her to listen to this episode. So, um, maybe this is at the end of like this special dedication to her. Um, 
And I hope that she enjoys it and she can find, you know, some sort of resources out there because, you know, everyone's story is different, right? Um, running has always been a part of her life, but it can definitely change drastically. And, um, you know, she's trying to rely on community, right? And I think Patrick is definitely providing providing that for, um, you know, for all athletes of every, you know, shape and form. Yeah. And there's a lot of really inspirational adaptive athletes out there. I don't know if you've been following along with Jackie Hunt, uh, Bros, Broserman, I, Broserma. I don't know how you say her last name. It's hyphenated. Um, but she's an amputee. Um, and she's currently trying to set the world record for running how many like consecutive marathons and her goal is a hundred. I think the current record is 95 and she's 34 done as of an hour ago, um, running one marathon a day as an amputee. So there's tons of inspiration out there in this community. Um, and I hope that the woman that you got to speak to gets to find that community there, because I think that there is, there's a community there and I think they're super, I think they're very supportive. So hopefully she finds that, um, Keely, you just changed up your society slam because you're, I don't know, all over it. Was that your society slam? Did I just mess it up? No, tell That's us right. more. I didn't even Just... read it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. I legit didn't even read it, Keely. That's I feel so bad. We're leaving this so in. Amazing. We're leaving this whole thing in. I stole uh, Keely Society Slam because I'm a jerk. Double. It's a double win. Both, double we slam. both are so impressed with Jackie. Oh, Jackie, so we both found her on our own. Out. Yeah. So yeah, we've been following. sent me her stuff too. And like, yeah, Jackie, double shout out. <laughs> so cool. I'm a jerk. Ugh. Okay. Anyway, we're going to close with one more society slam. I got a great question this past week um, from a listener. Um, keep sliding into our DMs. It's really cool to get these from you all. And the question is, um, the setup was kind of, you know, talking about diversity and getting uncomfortable. And she said, do we have any suggestions of finding that balance between navigating your own personal challenges and the bigger, but also very important issues like increasing inclusivity? How do you genuinely, in quotes here, like put your own oxygen mask on first before helping someone else without making self-care an excuse for not putting yourself out there for being uncomfortable and, le- and learning in these situations? And would really like just hear from us is like, how do you do that? Because that's really hard because we all are dealing with our own personal struggles and yet we still have to kind of keep the, the lights on to help others. And that's really difficult to do. And maybe that means that you just can't always do it. I don't, I don't know if do you guys have any interesting thoughts or good thoughts there or advice that we can give in this specific area. That's a tough question. Yeah. I mean, it's a really tough question, but I mean, the one thing that I, that I think about, and I think we discussed this maybe off air beforehand, but that running is, I feel like it's like this living, breathing organism that can like breathe life into so many people in real time. So I don't necessarily think it's something that we have to like worry about ourselves while, you know, someone else, it's like, you can do that at the same time, like your self-care, like going on a run, like with, with someone else, like in the run group, like, you know, how, um, how Richard had talked about a couple, a couple weeks ago in our last episode, like you can still get uncomfortable and still prioritize your own self-care because running can do that. Like it's an active, it's an active thing. Or maybe self-care makes you a better human. And so maybe your interactions with other people just are, Maybe you're nicer. Maybe you're nicer to the person bagging your groceries and you're nicer to the other cars on the road that are being jerks. And you're like, maybe that self-care allows you to be a better human and share better natural human interactions with people. Like that to me is maybe the simplest way to do it, but I don't want that to be an excuse to not do more. Yeah. Right. I almost find that it's like a snowball effect for me, at least that 
Um, you need to obviously prioritize your own self-care because if you're not prioritizing your own self-care, then you're not going to be able to be there for other people as well. Right. But I think there is a line that we can cross where we do put enough into our own self-care where we're at a place where we're, we're feeling better that I think if we do kind of push ourselves to take a step outside and really start helping in these other issues and diversity or branching out in the community and finding new diverse groups, we'll find that actually will help our self-care as well. Um, and this kind of is really timely for me as I, I read a stoicism every book every night. And last night, the theme was actually charity and selflessness um, and how they're really, really important to inner peace. And that's really just showcasing that if you do get out there and you put yourself out there for other people through charity and through being selfless, um, it's like going to have really, really good effects on your, on your inner health too. Right. So on your self health. So I think there's no really great answer to this, but I do think that sometimes you do need to prioritize your self care to a degree. But I think that if you can push yourself to go out there, even if it feels a little bit uncomfortable, I think the benefits of helping others um, is going to help you as well. I don't think anyone could say it any better than that. I think that's where we're going to leave you all today. Um, do me a favor so that I can't steal Keely's Society Slam for next week. Send her all of them. Don't slide into my DMs. Just slide into Keely's DMs. I heard she's got some extra time on her hands. Um, so just uh, hit her up with all your Society Slams um, so that I don't have any and I can't steal them next week. Um, but thank you so much. If you've made it this far into the episode, you you are true fans of trail society and we could not do it without you like subscribe leave us a rating and review um slide into our dms and we'll see you again in two weeks